0: Uh, I'm Paul Pepis, I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center, and I want to welcome you to this, the first of the Oregon Humanities Center's public lectures on our series on the theme of convergence, intersections between the sciences and the humanities. There it is. Um, I just wanted to make a couple of very, uh, one brief uh, event announcement before I I, uh, get going. uh, one of my colleagues at the university in the philosophy department, also a former fellow and board member of the Oregon Humanities Center, Colin Copeman, who is a philosopher who works on issues that are related to this talk, uh, is giving a, a lecture called How We Became Our Data, a Genealogy of the Informational Person, and that takes place uh, at the uh, the uh, Knight Law Center 110 at the Knight Law Center on Thursday, February 27th at 6.30 p.m. and this is sponsored by the Wayne Morse Center for um, politics and justice? Law. Law law and politics. Thank you. So that's um, Collins here. It's a fascinating project. He, He did some work on it while he was a fellow at the Humanities Center. I just wanted to recommend it to you. That's the 27th of February at 6.30 p.m. at 110 uh, in the Knight Law Center. So we chose this theme of convergence, uh, intersections between the sciences and the humanities, uh, given that the moment that we're in. It's a moment when the humanities and the sciences are both subject to growing skepticism and critique and sometimes attack. When the humanities are being pressured to demonstrate their value in quantitative terms when questions of ethics and justice regarding technological change and scientific innovation are increasingly urgent, and a moment when the University of Oregon is nearing completion on a new applied science campus uh, aimed in part to access industry funding. So we organized this lecture series to highlight key areas of human experience where science and the humanities intersect, as well as areas of divergence where we thought that science and the humanities could be brought into a more productive relation. Our speakers in the series, a group of distinguished scholars, scientists, and science writers, will discuss discuss a range of topics and perspectives relating to technology, bioethics, health and justice, climate change, and human, human adaptation, and neuroscience, and the human brain. Uh, Before introducing our speaker for tonight, the distinguished scholar of African American Studies, Ruha Benjamin, I have a couple of other announcements as usual. As always, and as you've seen, there's an information table in the lobby where you can find out about upcoming OHC-sponsored and co-sponsored events and where you can sign up for our mailing list. Professor Benjamin has graciously agreed to take questions following the talk. Because we are recording the lecture, people will need to come to the microphones in the aisle. So where is that thing? It's right there. We'll bring it to the aisles and we'll bring a microphone uh, so that um, your your question can be registered uh, on the video. To maximize audience opportunities to ask questions, please keep your question as concise as possible and make sure to ask a question. It gives me great pleasure now to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor Ruha Benjamin, who will deliver this year's Cressman Lecture. The Cressman Lecture was inaugurated in 1994 with a generous bequest from former UO anthropology professor and archeologist Luther Cressman. The inaugural Cressman Lecture was delivered in 1996 by N. Scott Mamaday. The lectureship's goal is the presentation and illumination of fundamental humanities issues confronting societies centrally occupied with science, technology, and business. Given both the Cressman Lecture's stress on fundamental humanities issues confronting societies occupied with science, technology, and business, as well as our convergence theme focus on intersections between the sciences and the humanities, I can't imagine anyone better suited to serve as this year's Cressman Lecturer than Ruha Benjamin. Professor Benjamin is an associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton University who studies the social dimensions of science, technology, and medicine, race and citizenship, knowledge, and power. She is also the founder of the Just Data Lab, which brings together activists, artists, educators, and researchers to develop humanistic approaches to uh, data conception, production, and circulation that rethink and retool data for justice. A prolific writer, Professor Benjamin is the author of two monographs centrally concerned with intersections between science and the humanities, People's Science, Bodies and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier, and Race After Technology, Abolitionists' Tools for the New Jim Code. She is also the editor of the volume Captivating Technology, Race, Carceral Technoscience, and Liberatory Imagination in Everyday Life. Taken together, Benjamin's body of work brilliantly addresses debates about how science and technology shape the social world and how people can, should, and do engage technoscience, grappling all the while with the fact that what, we may, br- what may bring health and longevity to some may threaten the dignity and rights of others. Professor Benjamin's lecture tonight promises to bring her devotion to humanistic inquiry, her capacious learning in science, medicine, and technology, and her fierce commitments to social justice to the fascinating topic, Beyond Buzzwords, Reimagining the Default Settings of Technology and Society. Please join me in welcoming Ruha Benjamin.
1: Good evening, good evening. Um, Are we okay with the sound? Should I move this mic out of the way and you can still hear me? All right. How's everyone doing? Good. Thanks for coming out tonight. Um, Please join me in thanking all of those who were thanked and the Oregon Humanities Center for uh, convening this public conversation. Um, I want to acknowledge that the land on which we gather is the traditional and unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, who were forcibly removed to the Coast Reservation in Western Oregon. Let us also acknowledge the intertwined legacies, the devastation of transatlantic slavery and settler colonialism, which contribute to the creation and continued wealth of this university and to this nation. We acknowledge the reparations owed to black and indigenous communities and nations and the impossibilities of return for generations past. Let us also acknowledge the ancestors in the room this evening as we fight together for better futures. We're alive in an era of awakening and mobilization to preserve this planet and all the beautiful creation that is no doubt worthy of the struggle. Ashe. You're going to see me put my finger up. It's going to be a little weird, but that's because we're switching the slides. We have an automated technology going on here. So pop quiz to get us started. Um, Turn to your neighbor, introduce yourself and without using the Google search function on your phone, try to take an educated guess on the author of this quote. We have guided missiles and misguided men. Thirty seconds, go. All right, let's come back together, maybe we'll get a guess from each side, someone who doesn't know. If you know, just just keep it to yourself. A good guess over here on this side. Oppenheimer, this side. Say it again. Sagan. It is Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) So it's a reminder for us that the quest for racial justice and equity in this country has always entailed a concern for the role of technology and technological prowess in that quest. Too often, our investment and our ability to build up our technological capacity has not gone hand in hand with our ability to build up our moral capacity and our social imagination. These two things have been Um, very asymmetrical. So in kicking off the talk, let's remember that we're building on a long tradition of thinking together about the plight of humanity and the role of technology in that. Whether we're talking about automated weapons or automated decision systems more broadly, what what other capacities do we need, creative and critical, as we move forward? And so let me begin with a recent experience I had being a nosy sociologist walking by two men in Newark International Airport when I overheard one say to the other, I just want someone I can push around. I didn't stick around to see how the sentence ended, but I could imagine all types of endings. It could be in the context of looking through resumes, deciding who to hire. I just want someone to push around at work. Or in the context of dating or marriage, I just want someone to push around in my personal life. The desire to exercise power over others is a dominant mode of power that has been given new license to assert itself, a kind of power that requires others to be subordinate. At the time, I was traveling to speak with students at Harvey Mudd College about issues of technology and power. And so when I overheard this conversation, I couldn't help but think of this advertisement from 1957, Mechanics Illustrated. Quote, the robots are coming and when they do, you'll command a host of push button servants. And then it says, in 1863, Abe Lincoln freed the slaves, but by 1965, slavery will be back. We'll all have personal slaves Again, don't be alarmed, we mean robot slaves. So much going on on this one little page, isn't there? We could talk about it for an hour. But for the sake of time, there are just two things I'll point out. The first is just to take note of the date, 1957, a time when those who were pushed around in the domestic sphere, wives and domestic servants, could no longer be counted on in the same way to, quote, dress you, comb your hair, and feed you meals in a jiffy. Hence the desire to replace free and cheap labor in the home with push-button robots. The fact is, no technology is preordained, but rather the broader context makes some inventions appear inevitable and desirable. Perhaps even more telling is that we will all have personal slaves again. That one little word tells us something about the targeted audience of this ad, certainly not those who are the descendants of people who were enslaved the first time. The imagined user is gendered, race, and classed without gender, race, or class ever being mentioned. Code words in this sense encode interlocking systems of inequality as part of the design process. Precisely by ignoring social reality, tech designers and adopters will almost certainly reproduce it. True in 1957, true today. With that, let me offer three provocations as a kind of trailer for the rest of the talk in case anyone needs to leave early or you get distracted. At least you know what I want you to know. First, racism is productive. Not in the sense of being good, but in the literal capacity of racism to produce things, of value to some even as it wreaks havoc on others. We're taught to think of racism as an aberration, a glitch, an accident, an isolated incident, a bad apple in the backwoods and outdated, rather than as innovative, systemic, diffuse, an attached incident, the entire orchard in the ivory tower, forward-looking, productive. In sociology, we like to say, Race is socially constructed. But we often fail to state the corollary that racism constructs. Secondly, I'd like us to think about the way that race and technology shape one another. More and more people are accustomed to thinking about the ethical and social impact of technology. But that's only half of the story. Social norms, values, and assumptions all exist prior to any given tech development. So it's not simply the impact of technology that we should be concerned about, but the social inputs that make some inventions appear inevitable and desirable. Which leads to a third provocation, that imagination is a contested field of action, not an ephemeral afterthought that we have the luxury to dismiss or romanticize, but a resource, a battleground, an input and output of technology and social order. In fact, we should acknowledge that most people are forced to live inside someone else's imagination. And one of the things we have to come to grips with is how the nightmares that many people are forced to endure are the underside of elite fantasies about efficiency, profit, and social control. Racism, among other axes of domination, helps to produce this fragmented imagination. Misery for some, monopoly for others. This means that for those of us who want to construct a different social reality, one grounded in justice and joy, We can't only critique the underside, but we also have to wrestle with the deep investments, the desire even, that many people have for social domination. I just want someone I can push around. So that's the trailer. Now let's turn to some specifics. Beginning with a relatively new app called Citizen, which will send you real-time crime alerts based on a curated selection of 911 calls. It also offers a way for users to report, live stream, and comment on purported crimes via the app. And it shows you incidents as red dots on a map so you can avoid particular areas, which is a slightly less racialized version of other apps called Ghetto Tracker and Sketch Factor, which use public data to help People avoid dangerous neighborhoods. Some of you are already thinking, what could possibly go wrong in the age of barbecue Beckys calling the police on black people, cooking, walking, breathing out of place? It turns out that even a Stanford-educated environmental scientist living in the Bay Area is an ambassador of the carceral state, calling the police on a cookout at Lake Merritt. To riff off of Claudia Rankin, the most dangerous place for black people is in white people's imagination. It's worth noting, too, that the app citizen was originally called the less chill name Vigilante. And in its rebranding, it also moved away from encouraging people to stop crime but now simply to avoid it. As one member of the New York City Council put it, quote, crime is now at historic lows in the city, but because residents are constantly being bombarded with push notifications of crime, they believe the city is going to hell in a handbasket. Not only is this categorically false, he said, it's distracting people from very real public safety issues like reckless driving or rising opioid use that don't show up on the app. What's most important to our discussion is that citizen and other tech fixes for social problems are not simply about technology's impact on society, but also about how social norms, racial norms, and structures shape what tools are imagined necessary in the first place. This dynamic is what I take up in two new books. We can click. The first examines the interplay between race automation and machine bias as an extension of older forms of domination. And the second is an automated uh, uh, edited volume on the carceral dimensions of technology across a wide range of social arenas, from more traditional sites like policing and prisons to less obvious contexts like the retail industry and digital service economy. As just one example from this volume, there's a chapter by Madison Van Ort, which draws on her ethnography of worker surveillance in the retail industry, where the same companies pitching products for policing and imprisonment to the Department of Corrections are also pitching them to H&M and Forever 21 to track employees. And even as she shows how workers are surveilled well beyond the confines of their workplaces to include even their online activity, Van Ort highlights how her coworkers use technology in ways that counter the experiences of alienated labor, what we might call duplicity at work. On this point, I'd like to pause for just a minute and turn to science fiction as part of expanding our sociological imagination. I'm going to show you a clip from the film Sleep Dealer by Alex Rivera, which reveals how global capitalism is ever ready to turn racialized populations into automata. Mexicans, not as migrant workers, but machines that work in the U.S. without setting foot in this country. So in this world, migrant workers are replaced by robots who are controlled virtually by laborers in Mexico, carrying out a variety of jobs in construction, childcare, agriculture, and more. Not only is the tech invasive, as we just saw, but it also allows unprecedented surveillance. So if a worker falls asleep for an instant, the computer wakes her up, registers the lapse, and docks her pay. Amazon warehouses on steroids. Of course, over the course of the film, Memo Cruz starts working at one such factory, which are called sleep dealers because workers often collapse of exhaustion when they're plugged into the network too long. In this way, the film reminds us how the fantasy of some is the nightmare of others and that embodiment does not magically cease to matter with automation but can actually become more intensified, intrusive, and violent. It's worth recalling that the etymology of the Czech word robot is drawn from the Slav robata, which means servitude, hardship. And as anthropologist Kathleen Richardson observes, robots have historically been a way to talk about dehumanization. Sleep Dealers also brings to life an idea that inspired the title of my edited volume, that technology captivates, fascinating, charming, and bewitching, while potentially subduing and subjugating people. To engage this tension, we have to pierce through the rhetoric and marketing of tech utopianism, as we try to understand the duplicity of tech fixes, purported solutions that can nevertheless reinforce, and even deepen existing hierarchies. In terms of popular discourse, what got me interested in this tension was the proliferation of headlines and hot takes about so-called racist robots. There were a first wave of stories a few years ago that seemed to be shocked at the prospect that, in Langdon Winner's terms, artifacts have politics. There were a second wave of stories that were less surprised. Well, of course, Technology inherits its creators' biases, and now I think we've entered a phase of attempts to override or address the default settings of racist robots, for better or worse. And one of the challenges we face is how to meaningfully differentiate technologies that are used to differentiate us. Consider the results of a recent study. Racial bias in a medical algorithm favors white patients over sicker black patients, reports the study by Obermeier and colleagues in which the researchers were actually able to look inside the black box of algorithm design, which is typically not possible with proprietary systems. What's especially important to note is that the algorithm does not explicitly take note of race, that is to say, it is race neutral. By using cost to predict healthcare need, this digital triaging system unwittingly reproduces racial disparities because on average, black people incur fewer costs for a variety of reasons, including systemic racism. And in my review of the study by Obermeier and colleagues, both of which you can download from Science or go to the Research tab of my website, I'm arguing that the indifference to social reality on the part of tech designers and adopters can be even more harmful than malicious intent. In the case of this widely used healthcare algorithm affecting millions of people, more than double the number of black patients would have been enrolled in programs designed to help them stay out of the hospital if the predictions were actually based on need rather than cost. So race neutrality turns out to be a deadly force. This combination of coded bias and imagined objectivity is what I've termed the New Jim Code, innovation that enables social containment while appearing fairer than discriminatory practices of a previous era. This riff off of Michelle Alexander's analysis in the New Jim Crow considers how the reproduction of racist forms of social control and successive institutional forms entails a crucial socio-technical component that not only hides the nature of domination, but allows it to penetrate every facet of social life under the guise of progress. This formulation, as I highlight here, is directly related to a number of other cousin concepts, we might call them, by Brown, Broussard, Daniels, Eubanks, Noble, and others and it's situated in a hybrid literature that I think of as race-critical code studies. This is an approach that's not only concerned with the impacts of technology, but its production, and particularly how race and racism enter the process. So two works that illustrate this approach are, first, Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression, in which she argues that racist and sexist Google search results For example, pornographic images that are returned when you type in the phrase, black girls. Grow out of a corporate logic of either willful neglect or a profit imperative that makes money from racism and sexism. Then Simone Brown's analysis in Dark Matters examines how the history of surveillance technologies reflect and reproduce distorted notions of blackness. She examines how surveillance is nothing new to black folks from slave ships to slave patrols to airport security checkpoints and stop and frisk policing practices. She points to the facticity of surveillance in black life. In this way, she's challenging a techno-deterministic approach by arguing that instead of seeing surveillance as something inaugurated by new technologies, we should see it as ongoing and insist that we factor in how racism and anti-blackness undergird and sustain what she calls the intersecting surveillances of our present order. And so to continue examining how anti-blackness gets encoded in and exercised through automated systems, I consider four conceptual offspring to the new Jim Code that follow along a kind of spectrum. We can start with engineered inequity, which names those technologies that explicitly seek to amplify social cleavages. They're what we might think of as the most obvious, less hidden dimension of the new Jim Code. Then we move to default discrimination, which are those inventions that tend to ignore social cleavages and as such tend to reproduce the default settings of race, class, and gender, among other axes of difference. And here I want to highlight how indifference to social reality is a powerful force that is perhaps more dangerous than malicious intent then we have coded exposure sorry i didn't mean to put my finger up that's dangerous this is dangerous all right back to coded exposure which highlights the underside of tech inclusion how invisibility how the invisibility or technological distortion of those who are racialized is connected to our hypervisibility within systems of surveillance and then finally we have techno benevolence which names those designs that claim to address bias of various sorts but may still manage to reproduce or deepen discrimination, in part because of the narrow way in which fairness is defined and operationalized. So for the sake of time, I'm going to sketch the last three with a couple of examples before shifting gears. Now we can change. So default discrimination. These technologies reinforce inequities precisely because tech designers fail to seriously attend to the social context of their work. Take for example carceral tools that underpin the US prison industry as a key feature of the new Jim Crow. At every stage of the process, from policing, sentencing, imprisonment to parole, automated decision systems are being adopted. A recent study by investigators at ProPublica, which many of you may be familiar with, examined the risk scores used to predict whether individuals were likely to commit another offense once paroled. They found that the scores, which were assigned to thousands of people in Broward County, Florida, were remarkably unreliable in forecasting violent crime, and they uncovered significant racial disparities and inaccuracies the outputs of the algorithm, shall we say. But what's also concerning, I think, is how the system reinforces and hides racial domination by ignoring all the ways in which racism shapes the inputs. For example, the surveys given to prospective parolees to determine how likely they are to recidivate includes questions about their criminal history, education and employment history, financial history, and neighborhood characteristics, among many other factors. All of these variables have been structured in one way or another by racial domination, from job market discrimination to ghettoization. The survey essentially measures the extent to which an individual's life has been impacted by structural racism without ever asking an individual's race. Colorblind codes may, on the surface, appear better than a biased judge or prosecutor. But crime prediction, I think, is better understood as crime production because those who are making the forecasts in this case are also the ones who are in a position to make it rain. Coded exposure, in turn, names the tension between ongoing surveillance of racialized people and calls for digital recognition and inclusion, the desire to literally be seen by technology. But inclusion into harmful systems is no straightforward good. Instead, photographic exposures enable other forms of exposure and thus serves as a touchstone for considering how the act of viewing something or someone can put the object of our vision at risk, a form of scopic vulnerability that's central to the experience of being racialized. What I'd like to underscore is that it's not only in the process of being out of sight, but also in the danger of being too centered that racialized groups are made vulnerable, so that being included is not simply positive recognition, but can be a form of unwanted exposure, though not without creative resistance, as I'll come back to in just a moment. But first, another brief interlude. All right, sometimes you gotta laugh to keep from crying, all right. So the show depicts how a brilliant, uh, a superficial corporate diversity ethos, the prioritization of efficiency over equity, and the default whiteness of tech development work together to ensure that innovation literally produces containment. The fact that black employees are unable to use the elevators, doors, water fountains, or turn the lights on is treated as a minor inconvenience in service to a greater good. This is the invisibilizing side of a process that Alondra Nelson describes as a dialectic of surveillance and neglect that characterizes black life vis-a-vis science and technology. Finally, some of the most interesting developments, I think, are those we can think of as techno-benevolence that aim to address bias in various ways. Take, for example, new AI techniques for vetting job applicants. A company called HireVue aims to reduce unconscious bias and promote diversity in the workplace by using an AI-powered program that analyzes recorded interviews of prospective employees. It uses thousands of data points, including verbal and nonverbal cues like facial expression, posture, and vocal tone, and compares job seeker scores to those of existing top performing employees to decide who to flag as a desirable hire and who to reject. The sheer size of many applicant pools and the amount of time and money that companies pour into recruitment is astronomical. So companies like HireVue can narrow the eligible pool at a fraction of the time and cost, and hundreds of companies, including Goldman Sachs Hilton, Unilever, Red Sox, Atlanta Public School Systems, and many more have signed on. Another value added according to HireVue is that there's a lot that a human observer misses that AI can keep track of to make data-driven talent decisions. After all, the problem of employment discrimination is widespread and well-documented. So the logic goes, wouldn't this be even more reason to outsource decisions to AI? Well, a study by a Princeton team of computer scientists examined whether a popular algorithm trained on human writing online examined the same racially-biased tendencies that psychologists have documented among humans. In particular, they found that the algorithm associated white-sounding names with pleasant words and black-sounding names with unpleasant ones which builds on a classic audit study in the social sciences which used old school resumes and found the same patterns with respect to to black and white sounding names. So too with gender coded words and names, as Amazon learned a few years ago when its hiring algorithm was found discriminating against women. Nevertheless, it should be clear why technical fixes that claim to bypass human biases are so desirable. If only there was a a way to slay centuries of racist and sexist demons with a social justice bot. Beyond desirable, more like magical. Magical for employers perhaps looking to streamline the grueling work of recruitment, but a curse for many job seekers. Whereas proponents describe a very human-like interaction, those who are on the hunt for jobs recount a very different experience. Applicants are frustrated not only by the lack of human contact, but also because they have no idea how they're being evaluated and why they're repeatedly rejected. One job seeker described questioning every small movement and micro-expression and feeling a heightened sense of worthlessness because the company couldn't even assign a person for a few minutes. And as this headline puts it, your next interview could be with a racist robot, bringing us back to the problem space we started with. Though it's worth noting that some job seekers are already developing ways to subvert the system by trading answers to employers' tests and creating fake applications as informal audits of their own. In fact, one HR employee for a major company recommends that we slip the words Oxford and Cambridge into our CVs with invisible white text to pass the automated screening. In terms of a more collective response, a federation of European trade unions called UNI Global has developed a charter of digital rights for workers, touching on automated and AI-based decisions to be included in bargaining agreements. Another development that gives me some energy and optimism amidst the daily barrage of depressing headlines is that tech workers themselves have increasingly been speaking out against the most egregious forms of corporate collusion with state-sanctioned racism. For example, thousands of Google employees condemned the company's collaboration on a Pentagon program that uses AI to make drone strikes more effective. And a growing number of Microsoft employees are opposed to the company's ICE contract, saying that, quote, as the people who build the technologies that Microsoft profits from, we refuse to be complicit. And as this article published by Science for the People reminds us, contrary to popular narratives, Organizing among technical workers has a vibrant history, including engineers and technicians in the 60s and 70s who fought professionalism, individualism, and reformism to contribute to radical labor organizing. The current tech workers' movement, which includes students across our many institutions, can draw from past organizers' experiences and learning to navigate the contradictions and complexities of organizing in tech today which includes building solidarity across class and race. For example, when the predominantly East African Amazon workers in the company's Minnesota warehouses organized a strike on Prime Day to demand better work conditions, engineers from Seattle came out to support. In terms of civil society, initiatives like Data for Black Lives and the Detroit Community Tech Project offer an even more expansive approach. The former brings together people working across a number of agencies and organizations in a proactive approach to tech justice, especially at the policy level. And the latter develops and uses technology rooted in community needs, offering support to grassroots networks, doing data justice research, including hosting what they call discotex, which stands for discovering technology which are these multimedia mobile neighborhood workshop fairs that can be adapted in other locales. And I'll just mention one of the concrete collaborations that's grown out of Data for Black Lives. A few years ago, several government agencies in St. Paul, Minnesota, including the police department and the public school system, formed a controversial joint powers agreement called the Innovation Project, giving these agencies broad discretion to collect and share data on young people with the goal of developing predictive tools to identify, quote, at-risk youth in the city. There was immediate and broad-based backlash from the community, and in 2017, a group of over 20 local organizations formed what they called the Stop the Cradle to Prison Algorithm Coalition. Data for Black Lives has been providing various forms of support to this coalition, and eventually, the city of St. Paul dissolved the agreement in favor of a more community-led approach which was a huge victory for the activists who had been fighting these policies for over a year. In terms of regulatory changes, the Pacific Northwest in particular among many other regions has been considering implementing bans on facial recognition and I believe in Portland it's one of the first places that's thinking of a ban not only for the public sector but for private companies as well. Another very tangible abolitionist approach to the new Jim Code is the Digital Defense Playbook, which introduces a set of tools for diagnosing, dealing with, and healing the injustices of pervasive and punitive data collection and data-driven systems. The playbook contains in-depth guidelines for facilitating workshops, plus tools, tip sheets, and reflection pieces crafted from in-depth interviews with communities in Charlotte, Detroit, and L.A with the aim of engendering power, not paranoia, when it comes to technology. And finally, when it comes to rethinking STEM education as the ground zero for reimagining the relationship between technology and society, there are a number of initiatives underway. I'll just mention one very concrete resource that you can all download called the Advancing Racial Literacy in Tech Handbook developed by some wonderful colleagues at the Data and Society Research Institute. The aim of this intervention is threefold. To develop an intellectual understanding of how structural racism operates in algorithms, social media platforms and technologies not yet developed, an emotional intelligence concerning how to resolve racially stressful situations within organizations, and a commitment to take action to reduce harms to communities of color. The fact is, data disenfranchisement and domination has always been met with resistance and appropriation, in which activists, scholars, artists have sharpened abolitionist tools that employ data for liberation. This is a tradition in which, as W.E.B. Du Bois exclaimed, one could not be a calm, cool, and detached scientist while Negroes were lynched, murdered, and starved. From his modernist data visualizations representing the facts of black life to Ida B. Wells Barnett's expert deployment of statistics in the red record, there is a long tradition of employing and challenging data for justice. Towards that end, the late critical race scholar, Harvard professor Derek A. Bell, encouraged a radical assessment of reality through creative methods and racial reversals, insisting that to see things as they really are, you must imagine them for what they might be, which is why I think the arts and humanities are so vital to this discussion and this movement. One of my favorite examples of a racial reversal in the Bellian tradition is this parody project that begins by subverting the anti-black logics embedded in new high-tech approaches to crime prevention. Instead of using predictive policing techniques to forecast street crime, the White Collar Early Warning System flips the script by creating a heat map that flags city blocks where financial crimes are likely to occur. The system not only brings the hidden but no less deadly crimes of capitalism into view, but it includes an app that alerts users when they've entered high-risk areas to encourage citizen policing and awareness. Taking it one step further, the development team is working on a facial recognition program to flag individuals who are likely perpetrators. And the training set used to design the algorithm includes the profile photos of 7,000 corporate executives downloaded from LinkedIn. (laughs) Not surprisingly, the averaged face of a criminal is white and male. To be sure, creative exercises like this are only comical, when we ignore that all of its features are drawn directly from actually existing proposals and practices in the real world, including the use of facial images to predict criminality. By deliberately and inventively upsetting the status quo in this manner, analysts can better understand and expose the many forms of discrimination embedded in and enabled by technology. And so, if, as I suggested at the start, the carceral imagination captures and contains, then a liberatory imagination opens up possibilities and pathways. It creates new settings, encodes new values, and builds on critical intellectual traditions that have continually developed insights and strategies grounded in justice. May we all find ways to build on this tradition. Thank you for your attention.
0: Uh, Questions for Ruha Benjamin? Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, You mentioned a couple areas in which technology has been used to perpetuate racism. Are there specific examples beyond the app in terms of policy that cities have enacted to use technology to fight back against racism, specifically instances of white supremacy?
1: Yeah, and so did everyone hear the question? Examples of technology in which cities in particular have used to fight back against racism. And so there, at the, in terms of municipalities, what I see is not necessarily framed in terms of fighting back, but there's a, a wave of attempts to create regulatory bodies um, that keep track at the very basic level of what automated systems exist in various locales. So New York, New York City in particular, um, a few years ago um, started a a, a task force that was just trying to um, take stock and create an inventory of all of the automated decision systems that were being used across city agencies. And even that basic exercise um, was an issue they were not able to do that basic kind of inventory for a number, a number of reasons. And there's both an official report that just came out a few months ago, um, and a shadow report in which a number of activists and people who were involved in the task force um, revealed the underside of what happened. And so I wouldn't call that an attempt to, to use technology to fight um, racism, but it was a, a form of accountability that's being trying trying to develop. That said, there are independent efforts. Okay, so I mentioned the white collar early warning system as a kind of parody, only because it bookends the talk. Because I started with citizen, that sort of is is the corollary. But there are a number of initiatives like the anti eviction mapping project, in which organizations are working to develop digital tools to visualize the process of gentrification and eviction that is happening in various locales, starting with some of the major cities. So that's a way of using digital tools in order to expose processes of displacement and subjugation. And so what I would say is what we need to consider is who are the tools being trained on? How is the problem being defined that technology is supposed to solve? So when we think about the process of developing technologies. We often start very late in the process to begin to question and look for sources of harm and sources of how power is being exercised. And what I would suggest is, we need to start our questioning far upstream to where the problem is defined that technology is supposed to solve and address. So one could imagine digital tools that are used to look for risky tenants, right? Which tenant, as they're applying, is likely to not pay their rent, et cetera, et cetera. So that the burden of risk is placed on individuals who are already caught up in a system that is a form of entrapment, I would say, versus turning the lens on those who actually are producing risk that others are meant to shoulder. And so this connection between riskiness and racism, riskiness and inequity, and who we're training our digital tools on in terms of this risk assessment is crucial. If we can go a few slides forward, I'll just show you an example, this one right here. Uh, That that one, yeah, judging risk. What you see here is a, a paper that was just presented at a conference about a week or two ago called Studying Up reorienting the study of algorithmic fairness around issues of power. And what you see here is a very kind of blurry screenshot of the slide of these um, authors, which shows that they're judging judges, the riskiness of judges, to make biased decisions, rather than the riskiness of individuals who are going to not, not serve their parole, et cetera. So it turns the lens on the judges and their patterns of discrimination rather than the vulnerability of people who are subject to our injustice system. So this is an example that's not necessarily exactly what you're asking at the city level, but it's these examples of using digital tools to study up and look at those institutions and structures that are producing vulnerability and precarity for the vast majority of people. Hello, Dr. Ruha, my Jersey girl. Hi. I have a question for you. Um, ancestry.com. I'm very disappointed with my outcome. And then there's a competitor, AfricanAncestry.com. Could you speak a little bit about DNA collection and the algorithms and how it's obviously not, yeah. we're not the target population? We, we are and we're not, so it's interesting. I would point to anyone who's really wants to dive deep into issues of genetic information, genetic testing, to take a look at a book called The Social Life of DNA by my colleague who I also cited earlier, Alondra Nelson. And she looks at the, the way in which all kinds of groups are are wrestling with the meaning and power of genetic information to make all kinds of consequential decisions. And so this is, uh, you know, an area that does dovetail quite a bit with this this algorithmic um, discrimination that I'm describing. And one crucial way in which they overlap is that the appeal of genetic ancestry testing, the way it started as a kind of recreational exercise, a kind of personal genealogical quest that drew in many people. And specifically in this country, there's a wide appeal for people to find their roots for a variety of reasons, we know. But what's interesting is now the way that this personal quest and recreational endeavor dovetails with all kinds of institutional structures that puts people's DNA or genetic information at risk of being used against them. And so, for example, the way that law enforcement can try to use this information to make familial matches for various crimes, or the way that it can be used, say, in terms of your health insurance, if you're shown to have a predisposition towards some, some illness, how it can affect your, your insurance. And so, what I think we have to be concerned about, similarly, with, on the algorithmic side of things, is the way that we are drawn in as consumers into a process in which we're not really paying attention to the potential harms of the process and the ways that it can be misused and turned against us. And so my hope is that our antenna will start to grow and we can begin to think in more critical ways rather than simply thinking of ourselves as users, because users get used. We should think of ourselves as citizens and stewards and rather than just thinking of the downstream benefits or harms, how do we impact the upstream design process and have the potential to re- refuse certain forms of, of data collection. You don't really have power if you can't refuse. If you're only given the power to choose between choices that other people have determined, then you don't really have power, right? And so we have to begin to wrestle with the the process very, very much early in the way that that St. Paul example, before this innovation project was rolled out, these predictive tools were rolled out and youth in St. Paul were going to be labeled as at risk or not. These community organizations galvanized and had it stopped before it started because their antenna were already up for a variety of reasons. And so it doesn't address the question directly, but there's a whole literature that I would recommend, starting with the social life of DNA that deals with ancestry testing. Thank you for that talk, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I guess I, my question is, could you speak a little bit to the international dimensions of your work? Because technology is something that often gets created in one place, but then exported to all the other kinds of places. and a lot of things you were saying, I was thinking you're almost like like there's almost this uh, mm-hmm. implicit uh, exportation of racism to other places that um, I've seen in, in other places sometimes. Yeah, but, absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely. And so and so the, the idea of the new Jim Code is necessarily drawing on the particular form of white supremacy that we know in this country. So it's it's resonating with this idea of Jim Crow, but the note the broader notion of Automating inequality or engineering inequity is a global phenomenon, and it takes regional and nation-specific dimensions. For example, very briefly I touch on in the book the way that caste and the national ID system in India is reinforcing caste discrimination. Similarly in China with the Muslim population and the surveillance there using digital tools. And so what we need are more, not just research, but Um, uh, in terms of strategizing scholars and people on the ground who are working to resist and push back against these dimensions to look at the specific ways in which things are taking shape in different parts of the world. Not to export my analysis that's mostly situated in the U.S. and applying it everywhere, but to encourage more scholarship and uh, coalition building in other places. In August, I was in Nairobi, and one of the the issues there has to do with financial technologies and the access to to these cash apps that are creating more and more cycle, a deeper cycle of debt in in Kenya in particular. So there's one article that's framed very interestingly because Kenya, one of the nicknames is uh, Silicon Savannah to resonate with Silicon Valley, Silicon Savannah, in terms of the tech development. But the counterpoint, as these researchers who've been looking at FinTech in Kenya put it, they said, is it Silicon Savannah or is it algorithmic colonialism? Because US-based firms are going there making these cash apps accessible, but then people are being drawn into these cycles of debt and the stigma around that is growing. So that if you go to apply to a job, um, the, the 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 whether you are blacklisted on one of these apps can prevent you from getting a job or housing, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's it's really something that is not only happening in Kenya, but the pace at which it's already taken shape there we can learn from in other places. And so this is the the general contours of what I'm describing is certainly a global phenomenon. But we want. We want analyses and we want people thinking and working in these different places to look at how the socially salient hierarchies in different countries are getting embedded and being enabled by these technologies, but they don't have to.
0: Uh, thanks for such a wonderfully insightful talk. I'm, and this one might be a little unfair, but You've already mentioned you gave your land acknowledgements, and you were mentioning coloniality, and I'm con- I'm curious to know if, uh, since most of this is all rooted sort of in Western ways and Western definitions of technology, if you've uh, been able to kind of think about or what you might suggest in, t- in ways or paths of thinking in terms of bringing in indigenous ideas of technology or ideas in which, of technology that are not yeah. generally accepted or thought of in terms of the cosmopolitan space.
1: No, I think yeah. that that's a really fair question. And one of the things that I'm trying to kind of explode in Race After Technology is our conflation of even the concept technology with the hardened software that's being sold to us. So when we begin to have a more expansive understanding of technology and tools, then it becomes not simply hard and software, but it also becomes our social relationships. The tools that can be used for hierarchies can also be used to establish forms of relationality and connection that are important. So I spend the, lo- the greater part of the chapter five, actually trying to give voice to all kinds of more community-based forms of tool making that's not just hinged on, you know, what's being sold to us, you know, um, um, out of, uh, you know, Silicon Valley. And so, both in terms of indigenous and other kinds of communal forms of tool making that I associate with the abolitionist tools that are going to to push back against um, the new gym code. And so um, beyond what I described there, there's a whole kind of literature that's really unpacking that, and I I appreciate the question. Thank you.
0: Thank you for coming out, nice before. Um, I'm a software developer, and I'm sure I'm not the only software developer here. Um, what should we as software developers
1: do to make sure that we don't fall into these traps uh-huh. and perpetuate these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say probably a month ago, my, my standard answer was uh, join in partnership with communities and rather than trying to decide outside of those sort of collaborations, work in concert with communities that your technologies are supposed to help. Look at the design justice principles. So if you Google design justice principles as a framework for how to go about designing technologies, that's out of MIT. My colleague Sasha kassanza Shock has started to put these into practice. That was my, That's my go-to. Start with that. But in the last month, I started reading a fantastic book that I think all designers, tech workers should read, besides my book. Um, It's called, um, called, uh, what is it, Ruined by Design by Mike Monterra. And the reason why um, I love this book, one, it's written by um, a designer, an engineer, um, two people in that demographic. And it has a really insider perspective, someone who's worked in the field for to over 30 years or so and one of the things and so I'm about halfway through the book and What's striking to me is and what I'm kind of taking away from it is that yes We need collective action. We need the sort of you know organizing frameworks that I hinted to in the latter part of my talk, but there is also a role for individuals to play in terms of standing up for what they know is right in the context of various companies and organizations. And the book actually gives tools and a framework, not unlike the oath to do no harm in medicine, a kind of ethical framework that people can begin to work on and to enculture um, in, in your in your workplaces. And so my, my recommendation is start with that. And if you still have a question, then ask Mike, not me. <laughs> That's OK. <laughs> Hello. I just wanted to
0: say thank you for using your platform and helping people and creating a voice. That's really important. Um, I also would like to ask, how do you think we should start pursuing litigation to enforce policies and make it, you know, not legal yeah. to not have everyone be able to have equal opportunities.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. So the question around litigation, and and I, I think the the one of the organizations that I think has really been doing great work is the ACLU in ver- the various chapters. And so I would say go to your your state ACLU website and connect and support the work that they're doing. Get involved. I know that they, in Massachusetts, they were behind the ban in, um, in Somerville, in um, Oakland, a few other cities. And so I would look to see what's happening here in Oregon as a starting point. And then also a num- the, the stories that I um, that projected in terms of what's happening in this region, look to see what organizations are you know the, the advocating for the legislation and figure out how to support. I think of legislation and policy as one bucket in terms of forward movement, I think of organizing, both tech worker organizing, community organizing. My own main bucket is pedagogy, thinking about education. How do we seed these ideas in our curriculum, in our institutions, um, as we begin to train future STEM practitioners in new ways with this more interdisciplinary, integrated ways of thinking, racial literacy as part of STEM training. Um, and then I also think of the role of the arts, um, and, you know, not just the kind of parodies that I um, showed in terms of the film and the project, but there's a number of um, artistic approaches to expanding our imagination in terms of what's possible with um, technology. And so these are just some of the buckets that I think um, we can all figure out where, what our niche is um, and begin to get involved if we're not already. With that, I think I'm going to cut, cut off the Q&A, and I'm going to stick around for some one-on-one. Thank you so much.